Heavenly Father, it is a profound privilege that you would speak to us and an indescribable gift that you would have your word recorded in this book. I pray that through the work of the Spirit, you would allow this text that has so much to pierce into each and every heart here in the way it is most needed today for your glory and for our good. What we need more than anything else as we gather as your people and really for those here that are exploring Christianity and do not yet know you or however they ended up here, what all of us need most is to see Jesus high and lifted up, that he might become more impressive in our sight. So we ask through the work of the Spirit that he would be lifted up, that he might draw all of us after himself. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, Dr. Paul Brand spent the majority of his life working in India with people that were suffering from leprosy. Um, And one of his major insights after being there for some amount of time is that all of the, 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 the really challenging, terrible things that, that happen with people that have leprosy, things like amputations and, and, and skin diseases and blindness, that, that really the, the, behind all of it, he traced it back to this one single cause, the inability to feel pain. I didn't know this until this last week, but one of the things that, one of the primary things that, that, that happens when you have leprosy is that, that it attacks nerve cells. And so over time, the person with leprosy is unable to actually feel pain. Philip Yancey in his forward to Brand's book, In the Likeness of God, he writes this. He says, leprosy silences nerve cells, and as a result, its victims unwittingly destroy themselves, bit by bit, because they cannot feel pain. Paul Brand first published these, this art, this, his findings in this article called The Gift of Pain, and he said, it's like if someone who can't feel pain anymore, they can't, they've lost sensation because their nerve cells have been damaged and they grab, let's say, just a wooden handle of a hammer that's rough and, and they began to use it and all these splinters begin to enter their hand. Well, they don't realize it. And what happens over time is it creates infections and sometimes amputation. Or when the nerve cells that are in your eyes that alert you to blink cease to send signals, you stop blinking, your eye stops to get lubricated, and you go blind. Paul Brand says it like this in his book, In the Likeness of God, at its most basic level, pain serves as a signal that something is wrong. Like a smoke alarm that goes off with a loud noise whenever the danger of the fire reaches a certain level. In this way, now I know for some in this room that might be suffering from chronic pain, I'm not attempting to minimize that, but there are certain signals that our body sent to try to help us. Pain isn't the problem. It's actually sometimes the lack of pain. Pain is letting us know that something is wrong so that we can do something about it. Here's why I start with this story. Today's text is painful. Today's text in chapters 4 and 5 is God bringing accusations against his people. He's bringing pain to his people's lives, not to harm them, though, as we're going to see in this text, to actually help them. One of the key places to understand what's going on in chapters 4 and 5 and what's happening in your life is you experience things like conviction, 
is God is doing what he says here in Hosea 6.1. He has torn us that he may heal us. God brings the pain of conviction that we might experience the joy of transformation. I love how uh, Paul, um, not the apostle, our executive pastor, Paul, we were at Aslan uh, at a staff lunch this last week, and he mentioned this story, and he said this. He says, conviction is to the soul what pain is to the body. It doesn't feel good in the moment, but we're actually in much more danger if we never feel conviction or God never confronts our sin. So as the sermon title says, sometimes it's good to feel bad. If you're able to stand, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Because we are covering so much ground, I will not be reading all the chapters, but I do want to clue in. I just want to give us a little hinge and really the center of of where we're going to go today. Hosea chapter 5, we'll start at verse 12 and read through verse 3 of chapter 6. This is God's um, always helpful, always trustworthy word. But I am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw a sickness in Judah, his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, but he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one will rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. And in their distress, earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. Feel free to grab a seat. There's a proverb that helps to unpack what's happening in Hosea 6.1. He has torn us that he might heal us. He's called us out that we might actually experience the joy of change. Proverbs 27.6 says this, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy saying those that actually point out patterns in our lives that are unhelpful are actually being good friends to us. In contrast to what often our culture would say, like, don't judge anyone, don't say anything. Proverbs would say that's what an enemy would do. So God is coming in this text as a faithful friend who's faithful to bring wounds. Hosea 4 through 5 is not your typical go-to chapters to make me feel better about myself, but I want to start with this. It is not devoid of gentleness, mercy, of grace, of love, or of kindness. Let me give you a few handles as we dive into the faithful wounds that are going to come. Let me remind you of our faithful friend. This is how verse 1 in chapter 4 begins. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. Even in that word, God is reminding his people, even in their rebellion and indifference to him, that they're still his children. The relationship hasn't changed. If we go to the entire book of Hosea, if we expand it out and we, we, we look at the book, we could summarize maybe chapters one through three, because by the time we get to four, we've already covered three chapters. We might summarize those chapters this way. You cannot break God's love. So go further into the book because we're going to see a lot of the chapters. It's a lot of accusations, a lot of ways that God's people have wandered from him. 
But then we get to places like chapter 11 and verse 8. How can I give up on you? How can I hand you over? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. It's like a father with a son who just consistently makes poor choices. The father's trying to help and trying to draw back and trying to mend and trying to restore. Or Hosea 14.4, at the very end of Hosea, as we get to that last chapter, I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I want to front load this, not to butter you up, but to remind you of the faithfulness of God to speak truth into your life, sometimes truth of affirmation, sometimes truth of encouragement, and sometimes the truth of conviction. He has torn us that he might heal us. Our faithful friend, he's faithful to wound. In verse one again, chapter four, hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. That word controversy means lawsuit. What God is going to do in chapter 4 is he's going to build his case against his people. And the way he's going to do it is actually three different kind of accusation, judgment pairings that happen throughout all of chapter 4. The first one is in verses 1 through 3. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy, a lawsuit, a case against the inhabitants of the land. And then here's what it is. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love. And no knowledge of the God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. So you see this accusation. Now you hear this judgment or this consequence that comes from living this way. Verse 3, therefore the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish. Also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Accusation 2 picks up in verse 4. And this one's not targeted towards all of God's people. It's actually targeted towards the priests and the pastors and the, the religious leaders. Yet let no one contend and let no one accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you've rejected knowledge, I reject you from bringing priests to me. The very ones that were supposed to be calling God's people back to him, that they might not forget him, they stopped talking. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sinned against me, I will change their glory into shame. The fraud of their public ministry will be exposed. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be, this is a really important verse here in verse nine at the end of this kind of accusation judgment. And it shall be like people like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. God's people at this time had, had become so numb to him that they, there was almost like this arrangement that was created between the people of God and then the priests of God. They said, the, the, basically the priest is like, hey, I'm not gonna call you out too much in the way you're living where I'm not really gonna expose the ways you're not honoring the Lord and then you all don't have an issue with me. You, you, you give a little bit of money, you make sure I can care for myself, you, you bring your offerings, you go through the motions, you bring your religious services, but let's not really get into the real stuff of our lives. And, and all the people of God were like, okay, that sounds good. You say we're okay. We'll say you're okay. We'll all just ignore the mess that's really happening. Accusation three. 
Starts at verse 9, I'll read till the end of the chapter. And it shall be like people like priests, and I will punish them for their ways and repay them for the days. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away understanding. My people, they inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles, for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth, because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters, they play the whore, and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cults prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. If you're visiting Redeemer, welcome, Redeemer. <laughs> welcome to our church. I've never seen these verses, you know, macro made on a doily in grandma's house. <laughs> And it keeps going. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to Beth Avon, and swear not as the Lord lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in a broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols, leave them alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in his wings. They've been carried about by this spirit is what it's saying. And they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. One day, the fraud of their worship will be exposed. Here's a summary of chapter four. How they were languishing. How they created this corrupt arrangement between priest and congregation. God had become weightless to them. He'd lost his bearing. He'd lost his authority. He lost his substantive presence in the life of God's people. There was no fear of God before their eyes. G.K. Chesterton says it like this. He says, when we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing. We worship anything. God had become unimportant, so they began to fill their lives with all sorts of other things to try to make up for that void. And the, the, the consequences are tragic. The, if I just summarize, through chapter 4, the community is languishing. They're being taken advantage of, and they don't really care because the system seems to be working for them. There's a lot of language of, of intimacy and intimate things that men and women are doing, but there's no children being born. There's no, there's no legacy. They're just being foolish. Like if you go to verse 12, they, they think a walking stick can tell them the future. They're like a stubborn heifer, which is such a sad picture. He says, oh, I would take you out and take you to green pastures and show you life that is truly life. But you're like a stubborn heifer. They're unteachable. They're unsubmitted. They're making their own lives and the lives of everyone around them so much more difficult than they need to be because God has lost his importance. If we summarized all of chapter four, we'd say it like this. They are chronically unfaithful. Before we dive into chapter five, one of the questions I want to ask is like, who's the audience of these words? I think it's really important to remember the historical context and the setting when these were spoken. The phrase chronically unfaithful, I would say, summarizes well who say it was talking to. And the reason this is important is God doesn't lead with this. God doesn't lead with chapter four. God has brought his law and his, his deliverance and his kindness and his provision 
It tries to invite people into life, which is truly life. And it says people are stubborn and they don't listen. Then he brings more words and he brings more accusations. And then eventually the, the, the judgment and the calamities that come are so severe and so significant. It's think about like a parent. Every parent struggles with this where they, they're trying to lovingly discipline their kids. They grow up to be flourishing human beings that love God with their heart, soul, mind, and strength and love their neighbor as their self. And when your kid steps out of line in a way that's unhelpful to them or others, you, as a parent, you come in and you discipline. But what you hopefully do, which almost none of us do as parents because we're so unlike God in this, but what we hope to do is do the absolute minimum necessary to reorient your kid back to a path that's going to produce life. If they don't listen, then you have to change the consequence. It goes, you can't use your phone for an hour. You can't use your phone for a day. You need to get a carrier pigeon. You know, I mean, it's like that progression of... of (laughs) But let's be honest. As parents, we often start with... I won't even say it. But God's not ranting. And why I say to remember this audience is I want to give you two W words that might be helpful to you depending on where you're at in your walk with God. For some of us, this is just a warning. Right now, you might be connected with the Lord. You're you're not doing what they're doing here. Oh, you wander, you sin. You can find yourself in these lists for sure. But you're not chronically unfaithful. God's people weren't always either, though. It's a warning of what happens when God loses centrality in our lives. For some of you, this is a wake-up call. At some point, God has become unimportant to you. And God is speaking to you. He's trying to tear you, though, that he might heal you. The people at this time, in Hosea's time, were ignorant of their sin at best, but more likely they were indifferent to their sin and they were indifferent to God. They were, um, as we get into chapter five, we could say they are what Jonathan Edwards' uh, sermon, probably the most famous, not beloved, mostly despised if you took it in American Lit, um, if you read his sermon in American Lit, but most famous sermon, they are sinners in the hands of an angry God. When Jonathan Edwards preached that, it, it was a re, like the design of it. I reread it on Friday. And the design of it is Edwards, what he was trying to do is he preached this in his, his home church of Northampton. He, he was trying to lay out the case of God's incredible holiness. And our rebellion and the just and terrible wrath that is upon anyone that doesn't turn from their wickedness and turn from their sin and turn from their rain and turn back towards God. But, but the point of it that often gets missed as we talk about sinners in the hands of an angry God, we create this caricature of, of God as this angry tyrant. The, the point that's missed that actually Edwards was trying to get across is this, and here I'll just quote the sermon. You know, most of us, we have like the, if you've read it, you have this one image, it's like, it's like you're a spider, a miserable creature held by a thread above a pit of fire. But what gets left out is this. Now God stands ready to pity you. This is a day of mercy. You may cry now with some encouragement of obtaining mercy. Saying, oh, the the great and mighty and holy and holy and holy God stands ready to save you if we just come back. 
He's torn us that he might heal us. What's interesting is when Edwards first preached that sermon in his home congregation in Northampton, no one really responded. People were pretty hard-hearted and pretty numb. But it wasn't the only time he preached. It actually, it was a sermon that was preached multiple times, and it was what's credited by God's grace as being one of the major catalysts of what was known as the Great Awakening. He preached it again July 9th, 1741 in Enfield, Connecticut. Same sermon, same point. And he says this in quoting Edwards. He says, your case is extremely dangerous. Your guilt and hardness of heart is extremely great. Boy, we could put that as a banner over Hosea 4 and 5. Consider yourselves an awake out of your sleep. But this time it had effect. People began, the, the account, the historical account of that moment was that people began to weep and wail and call out so much that it was hard to even get through the sermon. They keep stopping. People were just like, what must I do to be saved? And that's why Hosea was sent by God. He is God's mouthpiece to try to come to hard-hearted people and call them back to wake them up. They might say, oh, where can I turn to be forgiven? Remember, they're, they're languishing. Their land is polluted. We know what that's like. Verses 1 through 7 in chapter 5, in many ways, is a summary of the charges that were brought in, in chapter 4. I'm not going to reread those, but what I want to look at is verse 8, where it says this. It says, Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah, sound the alarm at Bethaven, follow you, O Benjamin. The, the, the horn and the trumpet were used in Scripture in two primary ways. One of them was a, was a call to worship. And so this would be like when a church, you know, they used to have like a bell steeple, like it was bell steeple, bell tower. Seems like that's an easier word to bell tower. There you go, if it makes sense. Bell tower. All right. You got a bell tower and they ring the bell and it's an alert for people to, to, to pray or it's an alert for them to gather in a congregation. The other use of a, a horn or a trumpet though was a warning that the enemy's coming or that an army's coming, or the destruction is coming to prepare. Hosea chapter 5 is that sort of use. Saying judgment is coming. Tim Chester in his commentary on Hosea makes a really helpful insight about God's judgment. He says it's both passive and it's active. His passive judgment we see in places like uh, Romans chapter 1, another chapter in the Bible where it says things like he gave them up. He gave them up to their, their sin. And what, what, what Chester says is God, he, he pulls back his restraint and allows people to experience the consequences of them living as if God is irrelevant. Chester says, like this, our sin leads to all kinds of social ills because God passively judges us by letting our sins take its course. If you go back to the beginning of chapter four, that's what's happening. The land is just full of all sorts of things that, that are unhelpful for us to be fully functioning humans. That's why they're languishing. But where we don't respond to passive judgment, what happens is God brings active judgment. We see this in, really throughout chapter five, I'll just start reading at verse chapter 10. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark upon them. And I want you to listen to the active intervention of God. Under the banner, he has torn us that he may heal us. The princes of Judah become like those who move the landmark. Upon them, I will pour out my water, my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he was determined to go after filth. 
But I am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw a sickness in Judah's wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, but he's not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one will escape. Hosea's words were meant to be frightening to wake his people up. For me in this room, it doesn't come like those frightening words. Sometimes it comes like conviction. God tapping on us, saying the path you're going is not going to end in flourishing. See this range of really powerful images in these verses, a flood of water, a devouring moth, corrosive rod, a festering wound, a vicious line. But thanks be to God, that's not the final answer. Even in verse 15, we see another glimmer of hope. I will return again to my place until, until they seek, until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. He's torn us, that he may heal us. He's waking us up so that we might come back. I love this beginning part of chapter one, verse six. Come, let us return to the Lord. The invitation itself is a reminder of one of the very sweetest consolations and comforts that we have in Christ. We can always go back. We can always go home. We can always return. Wherever you've been, whether for you this text is just a warning, you're, you're, you're in the embrace of Christ, you're walking with him, you're, you're building your life as best as you can by the work of the Spirit imperfectly but genuinely. Or whether you're in the spot of, of he, he really doesn't mean that much. And you can draw very short lines between the sinless of verse 2 and your life. God has lost his bearing, his authority, his centrality in your life. Come, return to him. The words are the invitation that any and all, regardless of their histories, regardless of their choices, regardless of what they've done, can come back. Come, let us return to him. I love how Dane Ortland says it in Gentle and Lowly. He says, we are called to mature into deeper levels of personal holiness as we walk with the Lord. Truer consecration, new vistas of obedience. But when we don't, when we choose to sin, though we forsake our true identity, our Savior does not forsake us. You can come home. Come. Let us return to the Lord. Or again, as Dane says, We cannot present a reason for Christ to finally close off his heart to his own sheep. No such reason exists. Every human friend has a limit. If we offend enough, if a relationship gets damaged enough, if we betray enough times, we are cast out. The walls go up. With Christ, our sins and weaknesses are the very resume items that qualify us to approach him. Nothing but coming to him is required. First at conversion and a thousand times thereafter until we are with him upon death. Come. Let us return to him. 
There's no penance to bring. There's no pledges to make. Think about Hosea, who Hosea was offering this hope to. People that were chronically unfaithful. And he says, come. There's not a soul in this room that if you take steps towards Christ, he will stiff arm away. He just says, come. You cannot break his love. While we are faithless, he remains faithful. He's torn us that he might heal us. I love how Derek Kidner unpacks this word, return. It's, a, it's, a, it's Hosea's word that we would say repentance or a turning from and turning towards. And the way he, he unpacks, he says it like this. He says, return embraces both repentance and conversion, but listen to this, crowned with reconciliation. The word is as strong as it is simple. It says, we turn from wandering. We turn from being marginalized in our life. We turn from being on the periphery. We, we, we had no understanding. We were not fit. We turn from that way of living. We turn back to him, this, this renewing process. And this is what crowns it, not just forgiven, but reconciliation, a restoration of the relationship. Come. He's torn us that he might heal us. This invitation is... Absolutely incredible. Whatever you've done, whatever you've failed to do, whatever you've said, whatever mess you've made, whatever you've broken, whatever I've done, whatever I've said, whatever mess I've made, whatever I've broken, Christ opens wide his arms and just says, come. That requires a response, though. There's an invitation, but there's also a response in this text. We're going to see this um, next week in verse 4 and through most of Hosea. Sadly, God's people didn't respond or were painfully slow to respond. Some of us are too. Conviction was meant to produce change, not just conviction. God is alerting us to things in our lives, not just that we're aware of them, but that we might do something with them. It's not enough to know what you're supposed to do. By God's grace, we want to do it. Knowing I have a mortgage payment on the first of every month is not the same as paying my mortgage. And if I choose chronically to not pay my mortgage, the pain that gets pent up is pretty big. Dr. Brand, he, he talks about this, this patient, this man who had... Um, leprosy in India, and he witnessed him turning his ankle really severely. And in doing so, he ruptured some ligaments. And for any of us that can, can feel pain, that's an immediate reaction, immediate response of which we're using crutches, we're bandaging, we're icing, we're resting, we're doing all of those things. Well, this individual, because he couldn't feel pain, simply got up and just kept walking. Over time, because of the instability of the ankle, continued to turn it and turn it and turn it until it became so damaged and so many complications set in, his whole leg was amputated. Today is the day. Come. He's torn you that he might heal you. We have all the motivation in the world to return. We can go back. There's one that will welcome us, who knows us completely and says, come. 
one who, who wants to heal us and mend us and do what this text says, that we may live before him. At the end of verse 2, it's a beautiful little phrase. The word live there means to flourish. It means to have new life created. Andrew Peterson in his book, God of the Garden, in the eighth chapter, um, he lays out this really raw um, season of his life. He spent a couple years in some pretty, pretty deep depression. And, and, he, and he recounts a, a number of the things that happened during that time and part of that journey. And then he talks about one of the two things that really helped to pull him out of that season. It was actually the planting of seeds with his daughter, Skye. Um, it was spring outside of, he has uh, some property outside of, of Nashville, and he was going out to the garden, and in one hand he has a trowel, and in another hand he has a, a pack of seeds, and, and his daughter is following behind. And this is how he describes this scene that became so impactful to him, as he was experiencing so much pain, what felt like the, the frowning face of God upon his life. He says, I grabbed the trowel in my hand, and I stabbed it into the earth. I did it again, then again. I tore a furrow into the ground a foot long, then laid the trowel aside and parted the dirt with my fingers. Now we plant the seed. And he goes on, and this is this inside that I think is so helpful to, he has torn us that he might heal us. He goes on and says this, he says, I wasn't angry at the earth when I wounded it, nor was I killing the seed when I buried it. I was giving it a chance to be born again. If God is bringing conviction into your life, he's holding up the mirror. He's exposing the things that need to be exposed. He is not striking you because he dislikes you. He is not harming you because he wants to shame you. He wants to heal you. He wants to give you the opportunity to have new life birthed, that you might live, flourish before him. He's torn us, that he might heal us. I love, there's so many words in just these few verses here. Um, I always set my, my timer on my, my phone, and it's always a lie. So my time is up, but this text is not done. I knew it would go long. We'll just do a few more. This word heal means to pardon, to mend, to sew back together, to, repay, to repair something that has been frayed, to comfort, to restore. It's the word used for a surgeon. Started thinking about this. Um, one of my my one of my friends in this church, just a great guy, a guy named Jim Woods. Um, he's got the best stories. He loves Jesus, loves the Bible, loves loves his wife Judy. Just a, just a wonderful couple. And one of the things that that I found out, like the first time we're hanging out for breakfast, is that he was a, a general surgeon for about fifty years, and he taught in a, a hospital, and 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 just just really really interesting story. And one of the things that I found about a general surgeon, it sounds kind of generic, but it's actually a specialist in many ways. And what a general surgeon is, it means that they can perform surgery on any part of your body. 
They can do it all. They, they have learned how to do all of the, what I believe it's, there's like nine major surgical areas of the human body and they can jump in and do it. They've, they've trained themselves to have that kind of level of, of broad knowledge that they can try to heal any ailment. Another thing about a general surgeon is they're very involved prior to the surgery, during the surgery, and after the surgery. I just thought, man, that's a perfect picture of who God is for us. He is a general surgeon, able to heal all the wounds, able to mend all the ways you've broken things, able to repair whatever is busted. He's torn us that he might heal us. Love this other phrase that he wants to revive us. He's going to raise us up. He's going to resurrect that which seems so dead. When Hosea writes on the third day in verse 2, on the third day he will raise us up, the audience for them would be thinking, soon, soon. For us in light of Jesus dying on the cross and on the third day being risen up, we have a new and truer significance to these words. The situation in Israel was nearly dead. Their their spiritual compromise was so grand, their spiritual life was all but dead. The community was dying. The land even was languishing. They needed more than a new strategy for living. Just like them, we need more than a new strategy for living. We need a resurrection. We need to know that the most broken and burnt out and messed up stuff can give way to something beautiful. A few years ago, my neighbor's house caught fire. I was sitting on our back deck, and all of a sudden I saw smoke kind of billowing out across the, the street. And, uh, and I heard fire engines. I heard, heard alarms, and they're, they're coming. And so I, um, I, I threw some shoes on, and I, I ran over to the house to try to, to help. So I'm like running in the garage as the flames are, are going, and the firefighters directly told me I was not being helpful. And so I promptly stood on the other side of the street with the other neighbors drinking coffee, watching my neighbor's house burn down. Um, and it was, it was a total loss. It was so charred, fire up through the roofs, entire interior just absolutely full of smoke, just, just, just ash everywhere. One of the things that's kind of neat, though, is that my friend, he, he's just got this great vision. He can see something that looks so broken and so burnt out, and he can get a vision for what it can become if it's cultivated. So then I watched him for a couple years come in and, 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 and pack out all of the burnt debris and get, you know, put that in a dumpster that was carried off. I watched him clean the land. I watched him, you know, he'd, he'd show drawings of, of what the house was going to be, what it was going to become. And, and it was amazing because I watched him do this. I watched him build this, this home and, and rebuild out of this, this rubble to bring beauty out of ashes. And so I have unofficially named the house. They, they, they don't know this yet, but I have named the house. That's the Phoenix house. It's like that bird in Harry Potter. It's just born out of the ashes. Something beautiful. And I don't know if this is true, but Harry Potter says it is, so it probably is. That the, the phoenix, not only are they this incredible bird that gets birthed out of ashes, this sort of resurrection, but its tears can heal the deepest wounds. 
It's fun, this last Easter, just a week ago, my family, we went over there. We, we got to baptize three of our kids, and we went over to their house, and we're doing this, this celebration, and I'm watching on the screen this slideshow that, 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 that my friends had put put together and, and we're doing an Easter egg hunt and I'm watching these kids like wander around the woods and this and I'm just thinking what this looked like. It was so burnt and so broken and so uncultivated. And then they fed us amazing food and scalloped potatoes. Can't eat for a week. I mean it's just a and good drink and then, then we're sitting out by this this fire pit watching a waterfall. Then we played pickleball. We were picklers. You ever play pickleball? That's what you called a pickler. I didn't realize that. There's just life. There's life after the ashes. There's, there's beauty after what's broken. God can take the most broken, busted, ruined, messed up thing in your life, even your deepest sin, and He can work it out for good. And we get to do this, flown under the banner. Oh, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. You will be so beautified by the work of the Lord. And sometimes his strategy is this, to tear you, that he might heal you. Here's the most true reason that we know we can go back, because Jesus came the one who was never unfaithful, the one that could never draw a line to any of the sins listed in chapter four, the one that, that always practiced steadfast love, the one that always loved the Lord with his heart, soul, mind, and strength and loved his neighbor as himself. And then he went to a tree where he was torn that we might be healed. And he went to a tomb and he rose three days danger to conquer and say, death cannot hold those who are in Christ. And there is a new creation coming where he is making all things new, including you. And he is sure to do it. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God. We have every reason to return, no reason to stay away. So do what this text says. I'm going to end with this. I promise. <laughs> they talk about preachers. It's like you're flying the plane. You're going around. You're taxiing around the airport. It's like land the plane. No, we got to turn around again. Land the plane. Come, let us return to the Lord, verse 1. And then verse 3. Let us press on to know the Lord. And in this, we go full circle in these chapters. If you want to know how to mess things up, do what the people did at Hosea's time. Forget the Lord. You want to fix it? By God's grace, seek to know the Lord. Know the Lord whose love you cannot break. Know the Lord that forgives it all. Know the Lord that can bring beauty from ashes. Know the Lord that while we are faithless, he remains faithful. God in his kindness, he brings conviction. Pray that we'd be able to receive it as a kindness. He's torn us that he might heal us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, the text is so rich. And in this room, God, it's needed in different ways in terms of its application in this moment. 
And so I ask through the work of the Spirit that you would speak to each and every heart for those that just need to be wooed back into gratitude for the judgment that Christ experienced that we might be forgiven. Oh, I pray you'd do that. For those that just need to be, just to hear the warning, they are walking with you. They, they, not perfectly, God, none of us do, but you didn't tell us to do that. Christ did that. But they would continue to do the, the right attending to their relationship that you might stay central and become more increasingly central in their lives. And God, I do pray for those that need to be woken up. Where they can draw very straight and short lines to the things that you're accusing your people of in these chapters. Where they find themselves right now as you're holding up your divine mirror. Father, that you'd wake them up and that all of us then would take the the instruction of this text and do what it says knowing the invitation is real and purchased with the blood of Christ, that we would come and return to you. And we would come and we would seek the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The band is going to come forward and we're going to respond as we do um, every week as a church. We're going to give you some space. They'll, they'll play a little bit of instrumental which just gives you some, some time and some space to, to process this how you, how you most need to process it. Um, you know, I want to, I want to, I'd love to like crack a joke and alleviate the, the tension, but this is actually a really sacred, beautiful moment that the Lord invites us into. To allow him to do the soul surgery that we need. That we might be able to grow in the ways that he is designed us for. So I, w- I would just encourage you, sit r- prayerfully. You can just reflect. Ask the Lord, say, seek, seek me, Lord. Show me if there's any wrong way in me. And lead me in paths of righteousness. And then the good news is we don't stay in that spot that we get to go to this table and receive communion together. We get to grab a little cup of juice representing the blood of Christ spilled in this little wafer representing his body given. And as you hold these, oh, I hope you remember he was torn that you would be healed. And I can say this in light of the word of God. There's not a single person in this room that they cry out in need for him. They confess their sin before him. And they come to this table with nothing but need that he will reject. You'll you'll have time. We'll sing a few songs together. Go to the table as you feel led.